0: Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast, I'm Mike Masnick. I want to drop a quick note before today's episode just to highlight that the discussion today touches on a few sensitive topics around things like mental health, self-harm, eating disorders, and a few other things as well. So if you're not exactly in the headspace to hear such a discussion right now, uh, it might be best to save this podcast for another time. On with today's podcast. Is increasingly technological. So we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Succinise and brutalize their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to so grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get
1: hurt to so grab a shovel and dig up the tech.
0: There have been... There's been really, I guess, an awful lot of talk lately about child's online safety. Uh, we're seeing various bills being pushed in Congress, and also a bunch in a bunch of different states, and uh, they that all claim that there's a, a massive crisis for kids online, uh, and that something has to be done. Um, and in fact, uh, there was just recently a large Senate hearing about that as well. Uh, And I think most people, I think maybe everybody agrees that the underlying concern is absolutely legitimate, that there really is a very serious mental health crisis uh, that also applies to children. It's not just children, of course, it's adults as well. Um, But there are some disagreements about the cause of it and also what to do about it. Uh, I've written recently uh, a few times uh, about some fairly compelling research in the Journal of Pediatrics that came out last year that argued that the rise in teen mental health concerns predates social media and sort of started coming about a few decades ago. And in the opinion of the authors of that article, could mostly be traced uh, back to the lack of spaces where kids can be kids without parents and adults hovering over them at all times, and that their look at the research suggested that social media was not the cause of of these concerns. Of course, there's a lot of other research going on, and people are still studying this, and people are trying to figure it out, but it feels like right now it's very easy for the press and also for politicians to uh, not just blame social media entirely, but also to insist that the solution is to take social media away from kids entirely. Uh, Researcher Dana Boyd recently complained about this, noting that what we really need is a digital street outreach program, not a law that tries to render uh, kids in trouble invisible. And so... I agree pretty strongly that this is what we need. We need to help kids not to shove their methods of communicating into oblivion. A few months back, uh, I was at a conference where I met uh, a very interesting psychologist uh, who had worked at the National Institute for Mental Health who had told me, in his opinion, that most of the policy proposals that he saw coming down the road seemed backwards. And that They really seemed to want to shove social media users under the rug, uh, even as that was where the kids were these days. And he was hopeful that there would be more solutions that met kids where they were, which is often social media. And he introduced me to Rob Morris, uh, who created Coco, which is a service that is doing just that, helping to meet kids where they're at, uh, if they're encountering troubling or problematic information or having a difficult time of things and helping them right there at that moment. And that is a looking to help proactively and in many ways i think coco is becoming as boyd recently described a sort of digital street outreach team uh i then met with rob and spoke with him a few times uh and uh He shared with me a bunch of examples of what it is that they do, and it just seemed like such a better way of helping kids online than everything else that I've been hearing about. And so I felt that more people needed to know about it, and therefore I asked him to be on the podcast. So Rob, uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks
0: for having me. Good to be here. So Cool. So let's start at the very beginning, and uh, can you describe to me how you came to create COCO, this service, this sort of digital street outreach team as I'll call it.
1: Sure, the origins of COCO started for me when I was a graduate student at MIT and I was struggling with my own mental health problems at the time, Um, quite severely depressed in fact. And I was very fortunate to have good treatment, good university um, counseling treatment, other programs. But even that, even for me, was not sufficient. There was a lot of gaps. And I started to read and dive more into the issue and discovered just a complete lack of resources widespread across the country and even across the world. Unfortunately, the demand for mental health services doesn't match the supply. Um, That's been a problem forever, and it's likely to continue to be a problem. Uh, So I did what any... um, Entrepreneurial MIT student might do. I just hacked a solution for myself and started to build my own digital mental health platform that was really tailored just for me, it was something I did in my office. Maybe eventually I showed it to my office mates, and then it kind of spread around. We eventually did a randomized controlled trial on this platform to see how it might perform on measures like depression symptoms, et cetera. And that was a trial that started with. Uh, I don't think it was something around 166 people. Um, And then it's grown from there. And now we've reached over 4 million people um, with a variation of the service. So it went from a very much a pet project, something for myself, and just kind of snowballed and and grew from there.
0: Yeah. And I've seen that you described it almost as like, uh, you know, almost inspired by like Stack Overflow, right? Which is this, you know, sort of community site for coders. You know, basically, if you have an issue that you're trying to figure out with with coding that, uh, you know, you can go and present it and people
1: come and, and help. Uh, is that is that still how you view it? <laughs> that, that speaks really clearly to the origins. Our, our service has grown dramatically since then. But right. one of the core ideas for me was I was trying to learn to code And the biggest problem wasn't the bugs in my code, but the bugs in my thinking about the bugs in my code. (laughs) So my code would fail, and I'd be like, what am I doing here? I'm not an engineer. In fact, I was trained more as a psychologist. Um, I came to MIT with no engineering training. Bad idea. And I realized that just as I can have this horde of people online come and help identify and fix bugs in my code, maybe I could... Create something similar to help identify and fix bugs in my thinking. This is very much derived from a cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy perspective. And the idea was, how can we leverage the collective intelligence and wisdom of other people online to to help support, um, you know, instances when we're dysregulated or stressed or simply can't, you know, see the reality in front of us because our our thoughts are so distorted. Uh, that was the original idea. It's since grown. Beyond there, um, we offer a lot of different services, not just the peer support service that eventually um, Mm -hmm. came out of that research. But there's there's a lot we can do if we have that luxury of a young person's attention, that like rarest element in the world. If we have that and we have it online, there's a lot of digital therapeutics and digital interventions that work really well, are really well studied, and can be delivered directly where people are just with one, one tap away.
0: So, for people who are, are totally unaware of COCO and sort of how it works, um, and you've described that you have sort of a, a few different types of interventions and types of things that you can do, can you just describe what it is, you know, sure. to, to someone who who has no idea, like, what is it?
1: Yeah, I, I think one thing that might be worth noting is is how it evolved into where it is today. We did a lot of user research just to see how we might adapt our our platform and our services. And one of the ways I did that was I just went on social networks, went on Twitter, went on Pinterest, and I would just look and see what people were talking about. And I was astonished to see how many people are openly disclosing um, depression, self-harm issues, how many hashtags there are, something like 20 million hashtags with depression on Instagram. And it occurred to us, well, maybe we can bring our service directly To people, not just, you know, have an app that people downloaded. So we pivoted really quickly, ditched the app and just started working on, okay, how can we reach people where they are? And the the user story for this is, you know, if you imagine a young person, maybe they're 15 and they're going on a a social network and they're searching for proanorexia or they're searching for self-harm or they're finding a hashtag and they're clicking the breadcrumbs and finding it. Uh, ordinarily, they might you know, see dangerous content, content that might exacerbate their sy- symptoms. They might also see supportive content as well, which I think we can talk to about uh, how difficult it is to moderate and police this content. But the way we see it is this is a tremendous opportunity. They're searching for this content. We can then route them to interventions. Um, At the same time. So if if anyone, you know, goes on to Google and you search for suicide, you'll see a drop down that appears that says, hey, call 988. But it's pretty limited. It's limited in terms of what services are provided. 988 is fantastic, but it's not for everyone at every moment. And it also doesn't capture the broad, you know, diverse array of different types of terms and phrases and algo speak people are using to talk about things like pro-ana, pro self-harm, suicide. So we try to catch those cases and then and route them to resources and then ideally provide them right where people are. And we do a variety of things. We look at you know, how acute the situation might be. If someone's in great risk, we're sending them to crisis lines around the world. We might send them to a peer support platform if they're in a lower risk bucket. Or we might send them to what we call single session interventions. These are things that can be done online, they're short, they can be done in one session, and they're derived from decades of research. I think one thing that people might not know is you can get meaningful and measurable and positive mental health outcomes sometimes for some people in a single session. A lot of research on that. So the old paradigm of, you know, going in person and having 12 to 24 sessions isn't necessarily the best optimal strategy and if we can pare things down and be really really efficient we can reach many more people
0: yeah i think i, I think this is really interesting um and you know i've talked about this in in related context where you know so much of the discussion about teen mental health and social media seems to think that you know you know as i said in the intro that if if you know social media companies were just better about stopping this mm-hmm. or blocking it that it would magically go away and that ignores the fact that a lot of this is is sort of a demand side issue that people are coming and searching for this stuff and i had written a thing this was a few years ago about the research in dealing with eating disorder content Mm -hmm. and um and and just how much of a challenge it was and how it started with like instagram you know getting yelled at by a bunch of people that there was a lot of you know pro-anorexia content and and related things and they you know, started by trying to block those discussions. And what happened was people just figured out other ways to talk about it because they were still looking for it and they were still searching for it. And every effort to kind of shut down that conversation was seen to fail Um, and eventually sort of, you know, drove a lot of those conversations into darker areas of the web. And in fact, you know, as you mentioned that, you know, when someone is searching for this information, they might find some information that, that pushes them further or deeper into, into that situation, or there may be some that is more supportive and and tries to lead them towards recovery. Um, but when you just get into this attitude of like, we have to shut it down completely, then there's no chance for that mm-hmm. to, to happen. And often it tends to go in darker and darker places. And so I, I really appreciate the the setup that you have um, and, you know, have gone through some of the examples that you've shown where it's really designed to say like, people are, you know, having these feelings and having these thoughts and rather than saying like, we need to, you know, deny them the ability to discuss it, but to like actually try and figure out what, what sorts of targeted interventions can, can work and, and meet them where they are. Um, so you, you talk, and you mentioned earlier and you talked here about this, you know, idea of like, you know, finding interventions that are actually shown to help. What what sorts of research are you doing? Are you working mm-hmm. with researchers to sort of figure these things out?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I can dive into that. Um, even before that, it, it's, it might be worth noting a few things that surprise people. One is I think this, relates to what you were just saying when people are searching for that content, it's not as if they're searching for content that will glorify self-harm and normalize it and make them worse. Like not everyone is searching for that. Not everyone is searching pro anorexia content to find the most severe restrictive diet. There's a lot of, um, you know, complexity in it. And we find that simply surfacing the resources, even for people searching for that content, they are quite willing to engage with it. Um, and then, we're able to do this with full appreciation of privacy. So it's really Mm. just a link that goes into anonymous service. We don't know what the person was doing on the platform, what their profile is or any of that that data. So those things are, are paramount. But then of course, research and the integrity of the research is really important. Our typical strategy is to work with external researchers and academics who are often building digital services. So there's a huge field of, Digital mental health, looking at how can we, you know, take what works offline in a traditional therapy setting and port it over to an online setting so it can scale more. So it reduces barriers to care. It's, you know, cheap or free. Um, you don't have to drive, you know, miles and miles to go access it. And we look at researchers who are innovating in the space and creating things that work well in a lab setting or in a clinical trial setting. And then we take that research, those interventions they create, and in partnership with them, we then really carefully and with a lot of effort, translate them into a more consumer-facing product that speaks to the user. Because it is important to engage the user, engage the the person we're reaching just as much as it is to have something effective. If they're not going to use it, you know, it misses the point.
0: Mm -hmm. And... I mean, we've we've spoken about the interventions that are the sort of demand side thing when someone is searching for certain information and sort of presenting something that that guides them towards some sort of intervention. Um, do you also have scenarios that you know, especially sort of if people know who Coco is and that it exists, that they can go direct?
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. We do have. Some of that on our our webpage, cococares.org. We do focus mostly, however, on reaching young people where they are and creating a very integrated experience. So we don't really maintain a a third-party application or something you can download on your phone, though that's Mm -hmm. something we we would hope to do in the future. Um, And I should say,
0: which I didn't mention earlier and is important to note, that this is all, you've set it up now as a nonprofit uh, organization. So... Um, The, so I I want to dig in a little bit more on the different interventions. Um, You talked about like sort of these like, you know, one shot interventions. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you just describe kind of what is the experience for a user? So let's say they've, you know, done some sort of search that triggered one of these interventions and they click through, what is it that they're going to see? What is it that they're going to go
1: through? Yeah. Good question. It it depends a little bit on what they're presenting, um, what they might be searching for. Um, Once they get into our service and platform, first thing we ask is what they're struggling with. Uh, If they disclose suicidal thoughts, self-harm, disordered eating, we work really hard and we endeavor really hard to get them to a helpline around the world. Mm -hmm. And we've done a lot of research on this. We've published randomized trials with, with Harvard and other groups to look at how can we get a young person to actually access the services. So if you just flash up a, you know, a 988 number or some other helpline number around the world and, and present it to a young person, the click-through rate is terrible. It's, it's really bad. Mm. We've, we've done research on this and the objections and barriers. Once you actually ask these young people, you know, why aren't you seeking this helpline? They make sense. It's things like, oh, I don't want my parents to find out or, I don't want the police to show up. It's it's amazing how many young people think calling nine eight eight will inevitably lead to, you know, an emergency services visit. So we did a lot of work trying to systematically overcome those barriers. Give people like an FAQ, just provide some context before we present the numbers, or while we present the numbers. Um, otherwise, we can send people to um, these single session interventions, which I which I talked about earlier, and those are focused on specific things so we have one for body image we have one for self harm one generally for depression and they're they're short they're about mm, you know 8 to 15 minutes by design really mm-hmm. really short and we work really really hard to maintain the therapeutic benefits as we shorten them so we're always looking at like pre and post measures trying to see if you know as we shorten them nothing's getting diluted but the basic idea just as an example let's take self-harm. Um, mm-hmm. we'll we'll strive to do a few things. And the first thing we want to do is is validate the person and and help them understand that you know there's nothing wrong with with them if they're self-harming. It's it's quite common. Something like 17% of young people engage in self-harm behaviors. So you really want to validate the person and that step alone is, can be pretty transformative. Um, it could be young people thinking there's something terribly wrong with them, um, that they're doing this. And and you start by, you know, helping them feel heard and validated. And then you can go into, you know, describing sort of the cycle of self-harm and and how it works. How when you feel bad, you feel self-hatred, you can harm yourself. And then you feel more self-hatred then you harm yourself again. And your brain starts to form these connections that make it, you know, in some cases, a very addictive behavior. Um, it can feel good when you when you self-harm. So we try and talk about that, try and explain even just the brain chemistry and the brain science behind this. And, and then we provide alternative coping strategies. So like fundamentally self-harm is often a means to regulate. And there are other more healthy ways to do that. Um, so an example might be instead of cutting yourself, um, holding ice cubes very similar kind of experience. You might feel some discomfort and pain. Um, it's going to distract you from you know negative thoughts you might have, but it's a much safer way to do it. You can splash ice water on your face, um, do deep breathing. All these things activate a parasympathetic nervous system. So the, the challenge for us is how do we do all those things in a very short amount of time in really, really simple language and in a way that engages people um and if we can throw in like a cat gif here and there that that tends to <laughs> help a lot you'd be surprised that like the, the user feedback at the end it's like yeah you know, a good 30 percent say thanks for the cat gif <laughs>
0: and so so basically it's just it it's sort of uh like walking walking them through a, a form more or less is that yeah it's a, that it's it, it's more it
1: inter- interactive than that they can we might ask for some thoughts of their own. They might do a little writing exercise, you know, branches depending on what they're selecting and choosing. Um, but yeah, it's designed to be be quite simple. And um,
0: and how does it conclude? What what how does how does that end?
1: Uh, well, when it ends, um, we'll ask follow up questions, see how they're doing, and then we usually direct them to other services we have. One of which I haven't talked about is our peer support service. And there's, mm-hmm. there's some really interesting dynamics around that. And you can kind of tell a story about this. So, this was more akin to what I was building at MIT this idea like, you know, you're saying Stack Overflow, this hive mind of people helping. When I first envisioned this, I, I just kind of assumed, you know, maybe I would even have to pay people to come and, mm-hmm. and reframe my negative thoughts. I'm not designing something where it's a therapy session or people are having long conversations. But even just like short reframes, you know, who would do that? Who would do that for free? I even talked to this Stanford um, researcher who was a Tibetan Buddhist at a time, and I showed him, you know, this work I was doing, and I was, you know, very insecure, and he looked at it, and he's like, no one's going to do it. No one's going to do it. (laughs) But when I first started doing it, the people responding were saying things like, well, this is really interesting, because I just learned I have the same distorted thought in my head. And Mm. lo and behold, people really enjoy helping others on our platform. And we've since done research showing that helping others on our platform is strongly associated to reduce depression symptoms, even when you control for other kinds of behaviors on the platform. And it is overwhelmingly the thing people celebrate and like most about our platform. It's, you know, I liked receiving help. I liked doing those exercises, but what really helped me was helping other people and, and there's a, right. you know there's a lot of reasons for why that might be the case you're you're rehearsing things you're you're being kind to others in a way you should be kind to yourself you're mastering techniques by you know learning through teaching others it, there's a lot of wonderful dynamics about about that
0: yeah and and i'll say um you know when you and i spoke a couple months ago for the first time you walked me through the the sort of single interventions that we were talking about earlier, and then as I was researching and getting ready for for this to record this podcast, I was playing around with with your service, and I actually went on it and and provided responses to to a bunch of people because I I just wanted to see what the experience was like and the peer support network. I I'm you know I'm probably slightly older than <laughs> your your target market, um, but it was it was actually really fascinating and I I really appreciated the way, the way it's set up and the way it's organized and it sort of, you know, guides people very gently and in a nice way into helping and, and gives them, you know, a little bit of, of guidance into how to be a helpful participant and, and, you know, gives some, some gentle nudges and suggestions on, on how to do it. And that really like, just for me using it for, for, you know, I was responding to people for, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. Um, you know, it's a, it's a really positive experience on its own. Just this idea of like, you know, seeing people who are having a tough time here or there and figuring out, you know, giving them suggestions on, you know, ways to reframe and, and be, you know, positive in their thinking, um, not in a, in a, Sort of, you know, and, and as your app, as the, the service itself teaches you, you're not telling people what to do. You're not telling people how to feel, but you're just sort of, you know, helping to think through these things and reframe them. And it was a really just, you know, even for me, it was like a very positive exercise to go through that experience. And so I think it's it's a really powerful service. And, and you know, even even that original service.
1: Great. Yeah, I'm glad you had the um, experience
0: yeah yeah no it was it was very very interesting so you know um this the the combination of of things that you're doing i think are, are really interesting what um you know what strategies do you have to to make sure that they're really you know that you're able to to find people and meet people where they're at and and help them when they need help
1: Yeah. There are a lot of different ways to do it. Um, I'll tell you one thing we discovered recently, which I thought was really interesting. So we looked into Discord as a potential place Mm -hmm. where we could bring our service. And we started talking to server admins, server mods. And I found cases where there are young people, maybe even 16 or 17, who started a study group server during COVID, and next thing they know, they have 80,000 people and, oh my and and a channel that says vent and people are venting, you know, their emotional uh-huh. struggles. And if you have a good online community with, with anonymity or pseudo anonymity, it's going to happen. People are going to be reaching yeah. out for support. We've seen this in research we did with Twitch as well, like as streamers are streaming, even if it's not germane at all to the stream, people are going to be reaching out. So they had this problem on their hands where they have people reaching out for support, people not giving, you know, good, good support back, um, people disclosing things, you know, like they're feeling suicidal or extremely depressed. Um, so we started working with those servers to figure out, you know, what we could do, and that became a, a huge, huge project for us um, where we started building tools for the server admins so they can start mm. to. Surface our resources and you know, give people option to use Coco directly in that Discord server. So again, not having to download anything, and then also, you know, finding ways to identify automatically any keywords or phrases that might match something of concern. Uh, so we have to be really agile. Our, you know, our goal is how can we fit into any place where a young person is online and. Be really mm-hmm. thoughtful and creative about that because it is this case where I think the conversation is about how, how can we police these social networks, how can we shut them down when there's this huge opportunity. There are millions of young people reaching out for help on all these platforms in different ways, and if we could find ways not just for our through our service, but any you know service we want a constellation of, of services working, we can help you know millions and millions of, of young people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think it's it's really impressive and it is interesting, right? I mean, one of the the challenging things of this is that you know, where the kids are changes, right? I mean, this is just the nature of of the system. I mean, it's so funny how much of the focus of like the congressional hearings or whatever on like Facebook. And it's like, kids don't use Facebook (laughs) anymore. It's like, come on. They haven't used it. You know, 10 years ago, their parents got on Facebook and all the kids left. So it's like, you know, um, these things change and it's, you know, and, and like, as you said, like discord has become a huge uh, source. I know like, you know, my kids use discord more than, than any other service. And so it's interesting to see how, how these things are changing. And, and, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about, you know, what I've seen of your approach is also that, that you're sort of trying to figure out, you're not trying to force kids into any particular model or any particular way of thinking, but um, you know, finding them where they're at and when, when they're in need you know, presenting them with, with some sort of intervention that hopefully is, is helpful and hopefully is a, is a, you know, is a path to help. Mm Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, where, where you think you go from here? What's, what's sort of next on the agenda for, for Coco?
1: Yeah, I think it's all about breadth and depth. Um, there are a lot of platforms where we think we can provide a tremendous service, um, but we're not Integrated yet, or don't have official partnerships. So it's a lot of work to set those up. And then there's a lot more we could offer young people. Mm-hmm. We can't, you know, help everyone in the best way we possibly can. And so we need to expand our services, deepen the services, start figuring out how to direct people to resources on the ground. Maybe that's working with connecting people to you know, very region or local specific resources um, in community school systems, things like that. Um, there, there's just a lot of opportunity to provide deeper interventions and treatments uh, for young people.
0: Yeah, and I'll, I'll say, since I know that there are people who listen to this podcast who work at various platforms and who are studying these things and are very interested in trying to come up with useful solutions, uh, please look into this and and maybe reach out to Rob. Because, yeah, please do. Uh <laughs> I think I think there's a real opportunity here. And I'm I'm you know, every time you know we're constantly, you know, on the podcast and on the site, obviously constantly talking about like big societal level challenges around a, a variety of different things. And and this and and teen mental health is obviously a huge one right now. And it's it's um frustrating to me how much of the conversation just feels, you know, to be missing the point and isn't, isn't trying to target the real, you know, where can we actually help? And there's really, a lot of it just feels like trying to sweep the problem under the Mm -hmm. rug and saying like, if only, if only the tech companies hid this content or didn't allow kids to do this at all, that, you know, these problems would magically go away. But the reality is that they won't. And, and having like real, useful interventions is, is, you know, such a more
1: proactive and helpful solution. Um, yeah. That, and it's, it's know, good I, for the platforms too. You know, we've done work with groups like TikTok and and found that when we link to our body image course, over 50% show improvements and average 43% improvement in body image satisfaction. I mean, this is for, you know, an online social network where these challenges are are definitely present, but they're, they're ways to make meaningful and measurable outcomes for millions of young people.
0: Yeah, and so um, you know, you've talked about doing research on, on some of this stuff. Is there mm-hmm. published uh, research about about how successful some of these interventions have been?
1: Yeah, we have published a lot, um, partly because you know I was doing research at MIT on this topic. I did a lot of research on online interventions, digital. Interventions. So, our DNA is really rooted in in research, and we have mm-hmm. wonderful, wonderful research partnerships at Harvard and Stanford and Northwestern. Uh, so, we're really grateful to those folks. We have around eight uh, peer reviewed publications, at least two randomized controlled trials, looking at everything from you know the interventions themselves to the whole ecosystem. You know, how do we design mm-hmm. systems that increase the uptake of you know, resource utilization. How do we make sure once we present resources to users, they they use them and benefit from them? Um, so a lot, of, a lot of papers on our webpage, people want to
0: look at them. That's great. And then, so, I mean, is there is there anything else that, that we didn't cover, anything else that you think people should know about what it is that you're doing and what it is that you're trying to do?
1: I think the biggest, most profound insight I have from all this work is how willing people Mm -hmm. are to help each other and how empowering that is. And if we could imagine a world where these young people are struggling, are empowered to help each other. And through that gain new perspective and new mental health, I think that's a real scalable way to address this problem.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, yeah, it's not just real and scalable. It's powerful, right? I mean, it's powerful in a different way. And in a scenario that is, it's you know it's a it's there these are very serious problems and they're it's terrifying how much you know how much how big of a problem it is and it's been you know frustrating in general to see how little you know real focus is on trying to solve it and whereas it feels like so much of it is is talk and that's why you know as i keep saying to you i said to you before we recorded this and now as we're recording it like how uh how great it was to discover what you guys were doing and to finally see like oh here is someone doing something that is actually productive and actually helpful and actually you know is is trying to tackle this very large real real world problem as opposed to just sort of you know grandstanding and, and talking about it and saying like those guys over there they better fix this
1: yeah um, and so i would i would also just note the benefit of a nonprofit model you can have a nonprofit. Mm-hmm tech organization that knows how to ship incredible code that does exist. There is a wonderful, all those small ecosystem of tech nonprofits doing that. And that allows us to really follow the, the most stringent of ethical principles. We have an external ethical board that looks at everything we do related to privacy, AI. We're not there to follow a business model um, at all. We don't have a business model, right. <laughs> um, right. which you know, enables us to make impact without compromise yeah yeah no
0: i I think it's i think it's really important um i think i think the stuff you're, you're working on is just fantastic um and i hope that more people become aware of it that more people make use of it that websites integrate it more um and that you guys continue to to lead the way and uh and to provide real help so I, I I really appreciate it. Again, there the website is uh, it's Coco Cares K it's K O K O in case people are wondering, uh, and it's coco right Yep, that's it. Okay, just checking. And um, uh, I hope that that people will check it out. Um, so Rob, thanks so much for taking the time and and for everything that you've done, uh, and then for for you know uh, taking the time to come on the podcast and talk about it.
1: Thanks very much, Mike.
0: Thanks, and thanks everyone for listening as well. And uh, we'll be back next week. Get
1: hurt, to grab a shovel and pick up the tap. If we don't
0: stand up to them, someone will get. Hurt, to grab a shovel and pick up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. Hurt, to grab a shovel and dig up the tap.